Welcome to the Ask Brian Podcast Radio Show, where you'll hear from some of the most successful founders and CEOs of businesses and startups, sharing their best advice for success, and even some stories on how their mistakes actually make them even more successful. Now, here are your hosts, Brian and Tracy. Welcome to the Ask Brian radio show and podcast for those of you listening to the podcast. I am going solo today. I I don't even know what to do with myself. Uh, Peter is out with the dreaded COVID, so we wish him well. He's probably listening right now, and we wish you were here in the studio with us, Peter. We already miss you. But I would be remiss if I didn't follow our tradition, which is to introduce Ask Brian, because it is not spelled normally, it is spelled exceptionally, and that is Ask Brian, B-R-I-E-N, and if you're listening to the Ask Brian radio show for the first time, you might be wondering, well, that's kind of crazy. Why are they spelling Ask Brian with an E? And that's because we love all of our E's starting with our engineer. So a big round of applause to you, Shane. Thank you for making us sound so good. We're just going to help us look good, too, but we'll just take the sound good part of that. And then it's all about our experts, and our experts are what drives our show. We have amazing guests. Our guest today, we're going to have so much fun with. You cannot wait to introduce you to her. And experts in the Ask Brian world really require a lot of dedication. And we have a little formula where we define an expert as someone who has worked 10,000 hours in their field or business category. And most of the time you would think, okay, that's around 40 hours a week, over 50 weeks a year. So that would take about five years. Well, we think that's absurd because we know entrepreneurs never start out and probably never even ever work just 40 hours. So we think we could shortcut that down to about three years, of course. And then the education aspect of this show is our mission. It's our purpose. It's what connects us to you. It's what connects us to our guests. And the absolute E for education is our number one reason we're all here. And well, we also like to have a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of energy, And Peter always reminds me that my most favorite E, for those of you who are back and know this about me already, or just joining us for the first time, is that I'm a big fan of the E in Grease Lightning, which is electrifying. And speaking of electrifying, I want to bring on, introduce you to Rebecca Stein, the founder and CEO of Blind Tiger, the only line of non-alcoholic cocktails and mixers inspired by the Prohibition era. Oh my God, I can't think of anything even more cool than that. Welcome, Rebecca. Oh, thanks, Tracy. I'm so excited to be here today. Well, I can just say, welcome back to the Roaring Twenties, which is really one of my most favorite eras, mainly because of the style and your brand, your style, everything comes through in your product. And so let's start with just giving our listeners a really good insight into Blind Tiger. What are the products? What is the purpose? 
And let's just start with that because it is fabulous. Well, thank you. Yeah, so as you briefly mentioned, Blind Tiger is the only line of non-alcoholic cocktails and mixers inspired by classic drinks from the Prohibition era. And the impetus for us, actually, so I was listening to your expert talk, and, you know, I have over five years experience, but I'd still say I'm far from being an expert in this arena. We actually opened a speakeasy-style bar and restaurant back in 2017, and it's called Room 33, and it's based in Pennsylvania. It was going really well. It was unique to our city. And fast forward, as as you know, it's obviously still a major issue today. COVID hit, and the restaurant is mandated to take out only. But in Pennsylvania at the time, you were not legally allowed to sell alcohol to go, and 90% of our sales were bar sales. So we really had to like pivot and or shut our doors. And to try to create some normalcy during that time, I didn't want to let the team go. So we ramped up a bunch of different options. We had already kind of created a little bit of a non-alcoholic menu because we saw that there was a huge gap in that market, even just in our travels around the country and everything. And one of the things that we did, though, exclusively well was bottling non-alcoholic versions of our craft cocktails. So at the time, the response was wonderful. When we launched this, or prior to when we launched this, we were doing a variety of them. And because we had such a great response, you know, I went to the team and I said, you know, just being probably out of my mind, I was like, oh, I wonder if we can't bring this to market somehow. And that's kind of how Blind Tiger was born, right? So Blind Tiger is a moniker for speakeasies. And I wanted to keep with the brand, the Prohibition Arab brand that I had already started to build. And I love it as well for probably all the reasons that you do. And um, (laughs) we came up with four original flavors and we're about to introduce a fifth. And we officially launched the product into market in about uh, mid-2021. So, and we've been growing since. Well, congratulations. And I really think, I mean, first of all, the innovation around that type of pivot during the pandemic when things were so chaotic, so frustrating, especially in the hospitality industry, I really applaud you for just, you know, sticking your feet, you know, on the ground and being like, we're staying in this, we're going to win this and making decisions that were smart and strategic to keep your business alive and going. How has the post-pandemic, as people are coming back to more of their normal way of living, has that been an accelerator for both? the speakeasy, the restaurant, and the brand Blonde Tiger as well? Yeah. So since, you know, people have started to try to get back into their normal lifestyle or what it is today, the speakeasy has grown, which has been amazing, right? Like, you know, we we are probably, this past year is the first year we were actually profitable. I mean, we were obviously generating revenue, but, uh, you know, to be able to stay that long, to endure the hardship of those years and then come back and be profitable was really a win for us. And then Blind Tiger is, it's unique because we do, obviously we create a whole non-alcoholic menu at the bar around it, but it's kind of taken on its own life as well. And the opportunities, in some ways, the challenges of the pandemic created opportunities for us because it was, it allowed us to get in front of different people, different retailers, you know, different networks a little bit easier because everybody went remote. You know, one of the things that I've been reading a lot about and I've seen a lot of people share about on social media 
is the amount of drinking alcohol that the consumption of alcohol increasing so much for them independently as an individual during the pandemic that it it seems like that post-pandemic there has been such a huge trend for a non-alcoholic lifestyle that still enables you to feel like you're still fun, you're still social, you still have the same glassware, the same, you know, that, and I feel like that you were almost ahead of the curve in a way, your pivot was to stay profitable and sustain your business, but it feels like to me that you're really at the cutting edge of a new trend for people who have extended the decision to be living a non-alcoholic life. Yes, and we noticed that when I started doing this before we actually officially launched our business, I did extensive research into the market as well. And, you know, in European countries, non-alcoholic industry is booming and, you know, they were ahead of the curve. And we in the United States had just kind of really started to emerge in this arena, probably in like 2020, 2019, 2020. And it's, been growing leaps and bounds ever since. There's a lot of great non-alcoholic products out there and they're doing incredibly well. And for us, you know, our entire vision really is to drive inclusivity, right? Like whether you're drinking or you're not, we want people to feel part of the occasion. And that's the unique thing about Blind Tiger is you can have this cocktail and you can have it with a spirit or you can have it without, but nobody is the wiser. It's the same setup. It's the same glass, the flavor profiles, are the same. Obviously, the spirit's going to give you more of a kick, but, you know, it's really just meant so that you can, you know, whether you feel like drinking or not, or you're one of the 30% of the population that abstains from drinking for a variety of reasons, you have an opportunity to kind of still feel like you're part of the occasion. Yes, I love the inclusivity side of that. And I do think it just makes a huge difference for people to have that feeling a part of, even if they're not participating in the that sidekick, like you said. And speaking of that, in terms of the other thing that I really liked as I was looking through your website, uh, the ingredients of your product are super healthy. Yes. So we use all natural and we have some organic ingredients. We use organic cane sugar and honey. It's not a functional beverage. And there are a lot of really great ones out there that are supposed to give you like the relaxation effect that do exist in the market. Ours was more just meant to be like just a cool, sophisticated cocktail, right? Like you got to enjoy all the flavors, but it was more just having that unique drink in your hand, right? But you're not really putting a lot of like chemicals and stuff as a result of it. I mean, because, you know, sometimes you could say, okay, well, I'm not going to drink. I'll just have a Diet Coke or something like that. But the product that you've created, I mean, I've read that it's like, gluten-free and you're using natural sugars and it just feels like it's a healthier alternative to even like choosing a soda. Oh, it's much healthier than choosing a soda for sure. Um, We don't, (laughs) it has nowhere near the sugar content and even the one varietal, the bees knees doesn't even use sugar. Honey is actually the natural sweetener for it, but the other ones are lower in sugar. And even that is an organic cane sugar that we do use, but there's no artificial ingredients preservatives, you know, what's unique with our product too. And if you see it, it kind of, it'll settle a little bit at times. And that's because we don't use a binding agent, right? Like you just shake it well, but it kind of gives you the characteristics of a cool alcohol or a cool cocktail. So coming from a background of not being in manufacturing, not being in food service, I mean, because as I was looking at your 
bio, the speakeasy was your first restaurant. Is that right? Oh, yes. I had worked in them over the course of my life, and I had worked in sales in hospitality at hotels, but that was my first foray. And what, how that actually came to be was I've been very involved in our community. I had run for political office, and the second time I ran for political office for city council, I lost by a couple hundred votes, but one of my pillars was to invest in our downtown. And the way that I knew to do that best was to capitalize on what I did know. And it was hospitality and entertaining and event planning. And just surrounding myself with experts in the field really kind of propelled it to be successful. I knew when we launched, you know, I had to bring smarter people around me to make it go. And actually, the team that we launched with is still with us today. That's amazing. I have to say, I mean, the passion and the commitment to reinvigorate downtown. That's a huge passion point for me in any town to take that on. Plus actually starting and running a restaurant, which is one of the highest risk uh, investments and entrepreneurial path that one can take. And then (laughs) to then uh, parlay that into launching a, a literal brand and product that you take to market that you ultimately end up distributing to wholesale and not only just out of your own facility, but then into stores and things like that. Like, what a leap. What was one of the things that, I mean, did you feel like you were, what have I gotten myself into? Or I'm ready to do this? Or did you bring in a team to support you? How did you navigate that? Because that's a big leap. It's a huge leap. You know, when I reflect on it, I sometimes don't really know what actually, like, I really do believe I wake up with an idea and I'm like, all right, I'm just going to figure it out as I go along. And it really was that there's a serendipitous piece to it, right? Like, I do believe along the pathway of it, I connected with people that helped make that leap not so crazy. And when I decided I wanted to do this as a business, I had already invested much of my own money into the restaurant. So I didn't have a ton of money to get this one started. But locally, there was, and actually, it's, it's a statewide competition through a group called Ben Franklin Technology Partners. They have what's called a big idea competition, and they host a couple throughout the state every year. And their grand prize ranges, but it's upwards of $50,000. And before I actually even had the product in hand, obviously, I had done the business plan and all the work and the financials and everything for it. And I was like, what do I have to lose? So I applied for this particular competition and I ended up winning the grand prize. And so that gave me two things, right? That gave me a little bit of a market viability without the market, right? Like if they're willing to invest in me, I'm like, okay, this has to be something because they know manufacturing and technology better than most in the state. And then obviously gave me the funds and some of the connections to kind of get me going. And it was really that that served as a catapult for me to start to grow this. And I think that's one of the really important entrepreneurial lessons that I want to just hit on, and that is that, first of all, you had the idea, and that is the definition of entrepreneurship right there, is like, I have the idea, I'm going to figure out how to do it, and I'm just going to go for it. Because if you don't have that spirit to just drive you on the times when things are so hard, then it's just never going to happen, right? But then then taking that mindset and then going, okay, this is a great idea, but I need some help, and then having the courage and putting yourself out there to participate in this program that ultimately you ended up winning the top grand prize. So not only were you able to get the support and the mentorship and the funding, which is amazing, but I would also 
um, venture to say that that was a great validation of concept for you as well. Yes, it was exactly that. And with a huge validation of concept and it really gave me the energy I needed to keep going because I'll tell you what, as you probably know very well or others in the arena too, that in the entrepreneurial journey, there's a lot of downs, there's a lot of dips and you need the wins no matter how small they are, but you need to have them to keep going. And that really served as a reminder for a long time as, you know, I was venturing into this territory. Yeah, I know. Right. Because it's like when you see, and I try so hard not to fall into this, in my own world of running my own business is like everybody on social media seems like they're doing freaking fabulously. Like they're only <laughs> sharing the wins. <laughs> they're only yes. sharing the highs. They're only sharing the successes. But to your point, the lows are sometimes where we learn the most, but it's also when we need the most support. So if we're not sharing that level of connection, then we're really not, we're really doing other entrepreneurs a disservice. That is absolutely correct. And actually jokingly yesterday, I made a post on LinkedIn saying that one day I was going to write a Dr. Seuss style book called, Oh, the Mistakes I've Made instead of, Oh, the Places You'll Go. And it will be an (laughs) illustrated journey of all the things I've done wrong since I've launched my business because everybody has, everybody has them. And if they tell you otherwise, they're just not, I don't know. They're just, they just have no comprehension. So (laughs) talking about the mistakes of launching a business. So Rebecca, no one learns from what went right. Everyone learns from what went wrong. So throw some of your life lessons in the mistakes I've made. I think you should write the book too, by the way. Oh, I do as well. I think, you know, I always said I had a book in me and I'm like, you know what? This is actually a really good idea. So I don't honestly, where to begin, right? I have made so many, but I can actually start at the very beginning of the journey. You don't know what you don't know, right? And you're constantly learning and relearning everything. And one of the things is when we launched our product, I was insistent we were going to produce it in Boston round bottles because that type of apothecary bottle just seemed to go really well with the style of the brand and was widely available, right? Without having to spend a lot of money to get your own type of bottle made. So we did this and we started out with 32 ounce bottles. And when we did that, we got labels printed. I wanted to stay local at the time because, you know, I had a lot of relationships here. And so we produced these labels locally and then. They ended up going, I found a co-packer, which is a whole nother story and how to get into co-packers, especially when you're really small and, and emerging. And so we sent them over there and I got my shipment of product and I literally got my first shipment of product. It was two years ago yesterday because I saw the picture pop up on my timeline and it was, you know, several pallets and I opened up the boxes because I was so excited to see it and all the labels had come out all wrinkly and on every single bottle in every single box. And it looked terrible. It looked awful. And I was so distressed and I didn't know what happened, right? Like I was like, nobody had an answer. And what was funny is the guy who had done my labels, he was used to working with wineries and distilleries, which is such a different process than the type of production and manufacturing we had used, which was a hot salt process. And what I learned, which is so small and you don't, like I said, you don't know what you don't know, is the glue wasn't up to temperature, the glue on the label. So I had to get all the labels reprinted. And I had had 
a Kickstarter about to launch. So I had to use the product that we had in hand. And there was a lot of apologies when I was sending it out because the product itself was good. It was just the labels looked, you know, not great at all. I just want to just reiterate for those who have not walked the path of owning and running a restaurant or not taken a product to market in the food and beverage industry, because I've actually done both of those. I've owned two restaurants and I've launched a cookie line. And so I am so empathetic with what you're saying. But for those of you who have never walked that path, like you have chosen literally, in my personal opinion, the two most difficult things to do <laughs> by launching and running a restaurant and launching and running a food and beverage product. So the fact that the mistake was the temperature of the glue is as significant as that was to the level of disappointment to the visual brand. I have to say, in the scheme of things, you're doing amazing. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. It didn't feel that way then, you know, because you're like, you're trying to sell it to retailers. And that is the first impression it makes, right? So that was really hard. That was hard. Okay. So you get the co-packer, you get the, you get the temperature of the glue, right? And believe me, I know horror stories around co-packers. So it sounds like you did ultimately land with a good one. So that's, that's half the battle right there. What were some of the initial responses to the product and did you have to then ultimately tweak the product to improve it based on feedback? How did that work? Okay. Yeah. Actually, the product itself was very well received. People really like the flavors. The flavor profiles are very known to the consumer. You know, they're like lemons, oranges, cherries, a bit of a smoky. They're all unique, but they're not like unknown flavor profiles. So that helped us in the process. And there was only one profile we changed up just a little bit, and that was our sidecar. And we just added a little bit more brandy to it to start. So, but overall, we haven't changed anything yet. Fingers crossed. And you launched with four products and you have a fifth coming out or it's already out? It will be out for retail in about two weeks. And this one I'm super excited about. It's a lavender French 75. It's so delicious. So tell us the names of the first four and then the fifth. Yep. So they... They all have unique names, the Bees Knees, the Ward 8, the Sidecar, and the South Side. And they all have purported history as well attached to them. The last one is, again, the, the Lavender French 75. And these are all pre and post prohibition cocktails, you know, that were known to that era. Okay, Rebecca, you know, that's one thing that we that we haven't really talked about is like, so when you are launching a product, I know you had to go through, you know, making sure that your intellectual property is protected and the whole legal aspect of that, right? I bet it would have been awesome to have a system like legal steps in that process. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. We tried to originally trademark the name, but we were not successful with it because it was trademarked under a brewery in New York, actually, which even though they are a completely different product, you know, at the time I didn't have the capacity to fight it. So we went back and actually reapplied for it just a couple months ago. So we're waiting on that now. And we also tried to trademark the names of the cocktails. And that is another challenging one. What's interesting is there's actually only five trademark cocktails in the U.S., and I'm not going to remember all of them, but the Dark and Stormy and the Painkiller are two of them. And when we originally created our line of drinks, we had a fifth bridal. It was the Bacardi. And because that one was trademarked, we didn't touch it. So we dropped that one and we launched with the original four. 
Well, and that's one of the things that we were talking about is about the whole brand being around the Prohibition era and the Roaring Twenties. What was the inspiration for that and how does that connect? I know because of the speakeasy, but it, so it seems like it's something that is an extension of maybe a personal preference or passion of your own. How did that inspiration occur? Yes. So when we opened the speakeasy, that the entire impetus of the restaurant was to be a speakeasy. My husband and I had traveled around to many of them around the country. I'm really into the culture of that era. And my husband is a huge history buff. And he's also a major book collector. <laughs> like We have thousands of books, a lot of first editions in our home. And when we opened, that was my one promise to him was that the secret entrance to the speakeasy would be through a bookcase. So we created that as the entrance to the restaurant. So the front of the the place looks like a little bookshop. And then you go through a bookcase to get into the restaurant. But just everything from that time, the style of the time, the music, the jazz age, everything I was so in love with. And even the name for our speakeasies, Room 33, and that's because Prohibition ended in 1933. And I wanted to create a marriage of pre and post Prohibition and the time. So I know obviously there were a lot of bad things that happened then too, but it's amazing when you revisit the history of that era, all the interesting things that actually did occur and the changes that were made because of that time frame. Well, and for those of you who are are listening, when you have a chance, you've got to go on LinkedIn and take a look at Rebecca's profile picture because it is just so spot on, Um, (laughs) speakeasy, elegant. And speaking of inclusivity, you're drinking one of the products, but you're drinking it in a martini glass, right? Or is that, I mean, at least from the picture, that's what it looks like. So it's just everything about it, the brand, 360 degrees, holistically intact. It's just gorgeous. Oh, thank you so much. And yes, I am drinking it in a martini glass. And that's actually the intent of most of the cocktails is to drink them either in a martini or a coupe style glass. Love that. Okay, so we were talking about some of the challenges of the distribution aspects. How about when you were going from owning just the speakeasy to then now taking this product to market and launching it, how did you have to expand your team in order to grow the business, but then also keeping and being mindful that it's essentially a second startup, so keeping those costs in line as well? So what does it look like for your overall leadership team and your team in general right now? Yeah, the team is actually really small because that has been a challenge, right? When you don't have a ton of capital to with, it's hard to bring on full-time employees. And so I've been working with contractors that kind of specialize in their area more than anything. And then I also have one full-time employee with me. But the nice part is when we launch to the the individuals that helped us create the product and everything were part of our team at Room 33. They were founders with us and they kind of knew going into it, they weren't going to get paid for, you know, quite some time. So we all took on a role where, where none of us were paid for quite some time. And now I just pay myself a little bit because I'm full-time in this, more than full-time in this position, obviously. And they still do some part-time work with us, but it is, it's a capital intensive thing to continue to hire to help scale and grow, you know, to grow a business. And I'm continually looking for investment to kind of help do that. Uh, that's so incredibly true. And so in terms of scaling, what I really want to have our audience hear about is what are the plans for Blend Tiger? Where do you see this going? What is your vision for the product line for the company? 
Yes. So from a team perspective, you know, it's interesting. I'm a jack of all trades, master of some, none, but some, you know, right now, especially in this <laughs> arena. And there are definitely things that you learn as a founder, kind of what your, where your strengths lie. And mine really are in marketing, sales, communication. And that's where I do my best work. And so when I'm handling the other things, accounting and HR and operations and everything like that, it pulls those energies. And it's important whether you have a mentor or a partner that can kind of help guide you during that time to help you grow and scale the company, you know, it's beneficial to have that. So my hope is obviously to add a really integral key team member that also can help us scale and bring other people on. My hope with the company, obviously, I'd love to grow it to agree. I'd like to continue to expand the product line offering and continue to refine that, you know, that product market fit because that's so integral. And, you know, we launched two years ago. We're in about 400 locations, but we're about to more than double that. We've gotten to two major retailers that will be launching this summer. And I'm very excited for those. But, you know, it's one thing to get on the shelf especially as a marketing person, I understand how important it is to move it off the shelf, to do that sell through and to continue to get customers to come back. So it's really determining, you know, our business model is very strong in distribution and retail, and we are just a little bit in e-commerce, but I think it's a combination of having that omnipresence in order to be successful. You kind of have to figure out where exactly you want to go and who needs to be there with you. So, you know, obviously I'd love to be a national brand in the next few years, but time will tell. Well, and I think I want to highlight what you said and have it not get lost because I think it's such an important point is it's one thing to get on the shelf, but you also have to stay on the shelf because you need the business data, the track record, the success, the social proof. You need all that to continue to expand towards the goal of being the national brand. And So that, and with your expertise in marketing, I would ask, how are you marketing and what is working that is getting people to buy the product off the shelves? How are people finding out about it? 400 locations is not a small amount of uh, venues, uh, places for people to purchase it, but how are they knowing about it, where to go and get it? Yes, we do a variety of different things. Social media is something that obviously everybody does. But you need to know exactly your where you're pointing your efforts at. And ours are really focused in like Instagram and Facebook and Pinterest, like areas where you're capitalizing on recipes and things like that and kind of showcasing what your product does to an nth degree. But then what was really challenging early on, especially during COVID, was you couldn't go out and do samplings, right? So that was one of the downfalls of launching a product during COVID is you couldn't go into stores and offer people samples because of you know, for the obvious reasons of, you know, you just didn't want to expose any, uh, you were, you know, just having open sampling and product in stores. So now we're doing a lot more of that. And there's a lot of companies out there that you can work with to help fulfill that because obviously when you're national, you can't be everywhere. But I think that's integral, right? Is to create that customer experience to kind of show people exactly what the product is and what it can do. But then you know, just from a marketing and branding standpoint, visuals are so integral to me. We, you know, we've done some beautiful photography. We've done a beautiful commercial. We started to do some media buys in a regional area. And that's where capital comes into. Like, it's super essential. I've seen how it's done well from a media buy standpoint in the, at the local and regional level. But to get national like that, it's just, you know, you have to have the seller and you have to have the capital to support it. 
Yeah, I mean, we, we were talking during the break about what a natural lens, this brand has such a natural lens to storytelling and crafting stories around each of these different products and the whole prohibition and speakeasy. So I'm going to very much look forward to continuing a conversation with you about bringing that storytelling to life, perhaps through a podcast, because I think your customer base would just respond so well to that. But in the meantime... If someone wants to continue this conversation with you, because I know they're going to want to, what is the best way for people to reach out if they have questions or they want to learn a little bit more about your soon to be released? Oh, the mistakes I've made. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, obviously, we have a website. It's blindtigerspiritfree.com. And I can be reached directly through that website. There's a contact that just goes to me an email contact, but also Rebecca at blindtigerspiritfree.com. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm very present on social media, very present. So it's hard to not reach me. And even on like Instagram and Facebook, our handles are blind tiger cocktails. And, you know, if you go there and message or check out the product, you can learn more about, you know, the history of a lot of the cocktails. You can learn more different recipes and, you know, the backstory and everything like that. So I'm very accessible. I don't know if that's good or bad, but I'm pretty accessible. Oh, no. That's amazing. And speaking of podcast, which we did earlier, I want to remind everyone that all of this information, all of the contact information that Rebecca just gave out, the website address, all of those are going to be in the show notes for the podcast. So you can refer back to those as a reference. And you want to find us on any place that you listen to your favorite podcast, which is Apple, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartMedia, wherever you get your and listen to your podcast, please follow us, download us, share it with your friends. It's the Ask Brian podcast. Of course, that's ASN podcast. And you can listen to this episode and all of our previous ones. And Rebecca, thank you. It's been such a pleasure. We're going to have to wrap up now, but really appreciate you being here and love to have you back on in a future, in a future time when Peter can be with us as well. Thank you so much. It, it was wonderful. And you're listening to KHPS FM 98.1 AM 1220, your hometown. Thanks, everybody. See you next week. Thank you for tuning in to the Ask Brian radio show. You can listen to us every Thursday on KTHS AM 1220 and FM 98.1 or via Facebook Live or anytime wherever you listen to your podcasts. Visit askbrian.com to join the conversation and ask us your business questions and we'll answer them on our next episode. That's askbrien.com.